morning and welcome to the show. Well, the effects of coast-to-coast -coast leftism in the mainstream media and our parliaments are now becoming painfully clear. And they do not bode well for the freedom and prosperity most of us grew up taking for granted. From the moment we wake in the morning and switch on the ABC News, forlornly hoping to catch details about which strip club Senator Lydia Thorpe has trashed overnight, to the evenings when we sit down with our kids to help them with their homework about the inherent racism of mathematics and science, our days are filled with reminders that the world we grew up in no longer exists. Here is just a sample of the madness from this week alone in Australia and around the world. The Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre is refusing to allow a Chinese arts company to stage a dance performance called Shen Yun. As Rebecca Weiser reports in The Spectator Australia, the most plausible reason for this is that the arts company is associated with Falun Gong, the meditation group that was banned by the Chinese Communist Party in 1999 for being too popular. Its followers have since been jailed, tortured and even killed by the CCP. Australians used to fight to defend people against that kind of tyranny, but not in Dan Andrews's Victoria, which is 116 billion, that's billion, dollars in debt, the biggest state debt in Australian history and rising and will take whatever it can from Dan's friends in Beijing, where he recently made a secret visit. Dan's government has been found by the Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission to have acted improperly in the awarding of a $1.2 million contract to its friends in the Health Workers Union in 2018. IBAC described this as, quote, the phenomenon of grey corruption that is of increasing concern to integrity bodies around Australia. It's increasing, all right. Taxpayers who read the IBAC report into the matter will be incandescent with rage at the cavalier way their money is given to Dan's friends in the union movement. Dan himself dismissed the report as educational. Dan's secretive trip to China was followed by his West Australian counterpart, Mark McGowan, this week, who was not so secretive. McGowan, who is emphatically pro-China, was caught on a hot mic disparaging West Australian federal Liberal MP and former SAS soldier Andrew Hastie for having, quote, swallowed some sort of Cold War pills when he was born, unquote. McGowan was in China, of course, to suck up to the murderous communist regime. Meanwhile, Hastie has repeatedly warned that China's motives are essentially hostile to Australian values. Both McGowan and Dan Andrews are making their states increasingly and unquestioningly reliant on the Chinese Communist Party. This is a dramatic shift from the sort of alliances Australia has traditionally had. But that might be the new norm anyway. French President Emmanuel Macron also visited China last week and on his way back to France, told reporters that Europe should stay out of any conflicts that might arise 
Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Should the murderous Chinese regime make a move on the democratic nation of Taiwan? If China does invade Taiwan, as it has promised to do so soon, Australia will be unavoidably dragged into the conflict. Macron was essentially saying that Australia, whose soldiers fought and died in two world wars, defending France, is on its own when the emerging Asian superpower makes its move. In other news, the ABC had a rare dalliance with the truth this week when it reported that Twitter had labelled it a, quote, government-funded media organisation. The ABC reported that the ABC was liaising with Twitter regarding the way the ABC was labelled on the ABC's Twitter account. ABC supporters must be eagerly awaiting updates from the ABC, ABC about this important ABC story. It was a reminder, if anyone needed, that leftist news organisations, especially government-funded ones, do not like it when they are di not dictating the narrative. But they might need to get used to it because in some ways, the narrative is slipping out of their grasp. Influential Australian blogger Joe Nova reported this week that the delusion of man-made climate change is starting to disappear. Citing a survey from the United States, she said, quote, Across all age groups, American belief that climate change was mostly or entirely man-made fell from 60% in 2018 down to 49% in 2023. The fall was almost entirely in Democrat and independent voters. This doesn't bode well for the Australian government's plan, which was also published this week, to coerce us into buying electric cars by making conventional cars more expensive. If fewer people are falling for the climate hoax, what's the point in telling us, or even forcing us, to switch to electric? The Telegraph in London reports this, this week that Brits are rapidly losing interest in EV cars now that subsidies have been withdrawn. In sport, Rebel News reports that, in a sign that the transgender narrative is changing, a man called Lexi Rogers has had his application to play in the Australian Women's Basketball League denied. But the best news for freedom and prosperity in the world today, which you definitely will not hear about on the ABC, is from El Salvador where Nayib Bukele, the president since 2019, last year unleashed the nation's military on the gangs that had made the country a hellhole for decades. And this year he started incarcerating them in new purpose-built jails. Bukele has his detractors, but even the New York Times admits he has engineered a, quote, remarkable transformation to make the country freer and safer for law-abiding citizens and families. It's a rare reminder that individual politicians who value freedom can affect dramatic change, which brings me to my guest tonight, John Ruddick, who yesterday was officially declared the winner of a seat in the New South Wales Legislative Council from the election on March 25. 
Ruddick is from the Liberal Democrats party whose Freedom Manifesto is as revolutionary, relatively speaking, as Bukele's has been in El Salvador. Rather than sending troops out onto the streets, the Lib Dems are calling for the government to get the hell out of our lives. Among the party's most prominent proposal is for the people to never be locked down again. Ruddock is a lone voice in one house of one parliament, so has little opportunity for now to implement the Freedom Manifesto, but he does potentially hold the balance of power in the New South Wales upper house. Let's see how he's going to use it. John, welcome. G'day, Fred. Good, good to see you, mate. Thank you for, for that very warm intro. Well, you're, I think you deserve it. Let's see how we go. John, first, congratulations on being elected to the New South Wales Legislative Assembly. What's your first priority? COVID justice, Fred. Uh, so, you know, the, we're a libertarian party, so we, we believe in reducing the size of the government, OK? And that's a big part. We want to reduce debt, regulation, and we just want the government to get out of people's lives. But the highest priority is that we cannot let the last two to three years of the COVID hysteria to just be swept under the carpet. Now, I know that is what probably a majority of Australians want to happen. And all the powerful institutions that, that imposed COVID extremism on us, they want to move on as well. But we can't, it's not quite as simple as that because we've got this enormous Commonwealth debt and all the states have got debt and about 40% of it's because of COVID, okay, which was all entirely unnecessary. But we've also set a dreadful precedent where the big state can boss us around for no good reason, they can trick us, they trick people into believing it was a good reason, but they can boss us around, treat us like farm animals, and most people will go along with it. Now this, the COVID thing has passed, okay, except for the debt, but the precedent is there. Now I'm not saying they're gonna do it again with, a, uh, with another, you know, quote unquote pandemic. It'll probably be something to do with global warming, but they, they have got the taste of pushing us around and they're going to try it again unless we have a reckoning and we point out all the errors that were made and there were a ton of them. Yeah, I just got to correct myself. I, uh, you were elected to the Legislative Council, of course, not the Assembly. Uh, getting back to COVID, what's your strategy, John? I mean, there's two parts to this. There needs to be a reckoning for what happened uh, in, during the past three years and we need to prevent it ever happening again. Let's, let's address those individually. How do you, how do you uh, reconcile what happened in the past? Well, look, I mean, there's people have been calling for a Royal Commission into COVID and Anthony Albanese, about three weeks after he was elected the Prime Minister, he was asked by a reporter, will there be a Royal Commission into COVID? And Albo said, it would be unthinkable if we didn't have a Royal Commission into COVID. And he was right about that. Now he's gone very quiet on it now, okay, uh, and we will have a Royal Commission one day, but I don't want it for at least five years. Because what would have a Royal Commissioner is appointed by either the Premier or the Prime Minister. And they will appoint one of their mates to you know, write a big report and interview people and they'll come back and they'll say, oh, the government did a fantastic job, that should have gone harder. Now, what we do have this opportunity is to have a parliamentary inquiry where people like me on the crossbench and, and people from the opposition and the government can be there and we can call witnesses, we can subpoena documents and we can uh, you know, we, I want to go through it all. You know, why did we wear masks? Were they good or were they you know, ineffective? I think they were ineffective. They're probably more dangerous. Uh, and then, then I think the vaccines were rushed vaccines. It was obvious from the beginning that a normal vaccine takes 10 years to get to market. This one was rushed. Okay, and I believe on balance it's been a negative vaccine. 
Okay, and it could be, you know, I mean, I, I hear lots of anecdotal reports about it being really bad. I don't know, but we want to get to the bottom of it. Then we had the silly lockdowns, okay, which just blew up the economy, gave us the inflation, and a whole ton of other things. So well, we want a parliamentary inquiry, and we want to sort of ask that who made these decisions? Who made these decisions to go and put endless taxpayers' money into the pockets of the big pharmaceutical companies? You know, what, if the vaccine was so good, people would have paid for it themselves, okay? They can, they, they can afford their own food, they can afford the vaccine, if it was good. But what would be the outcome of an inquiry like that? I mean, are you envisaging that if there is uh, malfeasance or culpability that criminal charges would ensue? Look, I don't really... No, look, I'm, that's, not my, that's not the direction I want to head in, OK? Now, there may well be that there's certain people who have to lose their jobs as a, as a lesson. Now, I don't, I don't think we want to get into retribution, OK? Now, maybe it, I'm not ruling it out, OK? We basically really want an inquiry, finish writing a report, and hopefully it can sort of, you know, uh, you know, people will learn from it. And, you know, future lawmakers and the public, the citizens and the media, uh, who are very culpable in the whole mess, uh, people can say, yeah, well, look, we made mistakes. Here's the, uh, you know, the, the conclusive evidence that mistakes were made. We've got to put up safeguards to ensure this never, ever happens again. Yeah, we'll just get to the safeguards in a second. But I just want to dwell on this for a, another a minute because, um, I mean, the deep swamp, you know, Donald Trump refers a lot to the deep swamp in, in the United States, but I think it applies, that term applies just as uh, equally here. How confident would you be if an inquiry got up that the bureaucracy would just close ranks against you anyway. I mean, you know, getting, subpoenaing, being able to subpoena documents is one thing, but mm. actually getting your hands on them is another, isn't it? Well, look, yes, we, we, there will be a battle. We had all powerful institutions in this country were lockstep about COVID money. So we had the media, we had the major political parties, we had the bureaucracy, had the judiciary, had the police, okay, had the army, academia, Everybody, there was dissenting voices were not allowed, and they were shut down on social media and elsewhere. Okay, so um, so now we need to, uh, if it can, uh, I think a report can come out there. And look, people are starting to wake up. Okay, I think when when COVID first hit, I remember seeing a poll that said seven percent of Australians. This is like April 2020. Seven percent of Australians said that they thought that restrictions were too harsh that it had gone too far. And I thought to myself at that time, well, that's a pretty good base. 7% of Australians are already wise enough. Now, every day, COVID sheep wake up. One by one, they wake up. Mass delusions take over societies, and then people snap out of the mass delusion, individuals by individuals, and that's what's happening. Now, I know most people don't want to talk about it anymore, but they are wrong and we are gonna talk about it. Well, it's a sensational story. It's one of the greatest, it's one of the most, the biggest examples of government malpractice in our history, in my opinion. So, you know, it should be a compelling story to pursue. What power do you have to make sure that this inquiry happens? Well, okay, so look, I'm pretty new to the joint, okay, but I understand two things. I understand that there's quite a collegial spirit in the Legislative Council. So the lower house, the Legislative Assembly is sort of known as the bear pit. That can get pretty rough, but I understand people generally get along in the Legislative Council. And I understand that there is a sort of an unspoken convention that if a crossbencher does want to put up a parliamentary inquiry, that the other crossbenchers will agree with it and so will the opposition. Now, we're going to sort of test that convention here because I'm guessing that the major parties 
don't want to have an inquiry into COVID, okay? So let's see how it goes. But look, I mean, look, if we've got the balance of power with important legislation, I'm very happy to say to the government, look, you give me my inquiry and I'll certainly consider your bill. That's, that's, I think it's the most important thing that needs to happen. There's a lot of important things that we need to do, but the COVID justice inquiry, well, look, I think it should be an inquiry into the previous government's handling of COVID. But Indeed. Well, good, good luck getting it up and we'll certainly keep an eye on it. Now, let's move to the second part of that question. How, 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 how certain are you that the powers that be think of COVID as some sort of uh, rehearsal for the, for the main event and are just waiting to uh, clamp down again on, the, on ordinary people like you and I? There are people on my Twitter feed who are convinced that COVID was pre-planned. I don't rule that out, but I think it's quite unlikely. You can't just organise these things. There can't be a little cabal in Geneva or wherever planning all these pieces on the chessboard. Now, there may have been some pre-planning, but I think it's unlikely. Um, but the, um, these things happen spontaneously. Mass delusions sort of take over uh, when, when a population is sort of, for whatever reason, in a certain state, something comes along and triggers them to go to this hysteria state. Now, I think the circumstances were Donald Trump, the Donald Trump presidency, okay, where the swamp just went absolutely mental about Donald Trump. Now, I think, I think they had, I mean, he brought world peace. He made the American economy boom, particularly for low-income earners. I don't know what more you want in a US president, but the swamp hated Trump so much because he defied the political class in that he just walked off Fifth Avenue and into the White House. He's, you're not allowed to do that. You've got to become a congressman and a senator and a governor first. And you've got to be a vice president. You can't just be a plain citizen and walk off the street. I think that's why they hated Trump more than anything. So they hated Trump. They just tried to impeach him just before COVID started. The first impeachment failed. Failed badly. Okay? They had one Republican defect. They needed about 30 in the Senate. Okay? So, they, so they failed. And then, but you know, every three days in the Trump presidency, there was this new crisis, you know, invented crisis, you know, to, to, crea to create all these, all these bombs going off around Trump. It was all made up, okay? And the poor guy couldn't even run as a president. But anyway, they were just in a frenzy all around the world, the left, to bring down Trump. And then a bad flu came along, which it obviously was, uh, and they just made it 20 times worse than it was, and they freaked yeah. everybody out. But they got a good taste for the power that it gave them, didn't they? Do you think they are waiting to, to do it all again? Well, look, look, the thing is, I think it's, uh, again, it would be a spontaneous thing, but there are, so I don't think that people are coordinating it, but I think there was 10% of people in this country and around, you know, other similar countries, 10% of people loved COVID. They loved it. And they, 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 they loved being able to bully the dissenters like you, you and I and many other good people out there. And they just loved all this big state stuff. It was like a dream come true. And they, just, that's just, they, were, they were fanatical about enforcing COVID. So that, now that's not a lot of people, but that 10%, you know, they, these are people who are in important positions in you know, academia and political parties, bureaucracy, media, of course. Uh, and uh, so, so they will, they won't do it straight away. But yes, I'm absolutely convinced. Look, there is a rule about power that if someone's got the opportunity to use power, then at some point they will take that opportunity. Okay, so that we now know that the infrastructure is in place. We can create an alarm and, and people will go along with it. So, yes, now we, we can break it. We can stop that cycle if we have a full reckoning, through, with the, through, hopefully through a parliamentary inquiry. Indeed, well put, well put. Let's just get back to uh, New South Wales politics. 
I did paint a fairly uh, <laughs> bleak picture of, of leftist politics in my introduction, but I'm not sure Chris Minns actually fits that, uh, that, that mould. What's your impression of Chris Minns, the new Labor Premier of New South Wales? All around the Western world, the left in 2023 is at peak hysteria, peak irrationality. Okay. We should therefore be quite grateful that since we're going to have a Labor Premier, that it's Chris Minns. And I sincerely mean that. I wrote an article for The Spectator five years ago saying, look, this guy's the future of the Labor Party. He's a, he's a modern, modernist. He wants to move forward. Uh, now, we could have had someone like Dan Andrews or Jacinda Ardern. These people are totally hardcore left-wing ideologues, okay? Chris Minns is from the right of the Labor Party. He attacked Dominic Perrottet several times in the campaign for spending too much and giving us too much debt. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty good. So look, it looks, he seems like a nice bloke, okay? And he looks like a smart bloke. So I wish him the best. I want to have a productive relationship with him. And, you know, for as long as he's going to be talking about cutting debt and, you know, hey, well, look, another good thing Chris Minns did recently is that, you know, they, they, the rents are going up, of course. That's, a, that's another byproduct of COVID mania. The rents are going up very strongly. So there was calls saying, oh, the government's got to bring in a rent freeze, a rent freeze, which is just totally absurd. OK, it would only make the housing problem worse. OK, but Chris Minns came out and says, no, we don't believe in rent. We don't believe in the government freezing rents. OK, well, I thought that was terrific. Yeah, good move. Um, he does seem, you know, pragmatic and realistic. But there is one policy that was a fairly major part of his election campaign, and that was to uh, establish a new energy security corporation and pump a billion dollars into it uh, to invest in renewable technology. Now, John, you and I know that would be a billion dollars absolutely wasted, mm. not to mention the destruction it would cause to manufacturing and the quality of life in New South Wales. But the people voted for that, John. Will you, if he puts it up, will you oppose it? Oh, absolutely, 100%. I'm a global warming skeptic. I believe in what Ian Plymer, Professor Ian Plymer says on this subject. I believe this is a, the great mass delusion of our time. Uh, it was very interesting what you were saying before about how you know, the, the support for the belief in global warming is collapsing. It's not getting hotter, Fred, okay? We've been told for 30 years all these uh, calamities are gonna happen. They haven't even happened a little bit, okay? If anything, the, the weather seems more moderate, okay? And, it, and it, summers are not as hot these days as they were when I was growing up. I'm absolutely convinced of it. So, now, this global warming thing is this, is, you know, after, in the 20th century, the Western left loved socialism, democratic socialism. People like Gough Whitlam, you know, they openly say, we're, we're democratic socialists, you know, and the Democrats in America would say similar things. Now, socialism imploded. Uh, you know, when I was about 20 years old. You know, the Berlin Wall came down, two years later the Soviet Union came down. Glorious, okay. Now then the Western left couldn't go, couldn't actually have the uh, decency to come out and say, oh, well, you know, we were wrong about everything for the last 70 years. Those, those, those greedy, capitalist-loving uh, free market guys, they were right about everything. It brings human prosperity to people. Now they couldn't say that. They had to go and find another excuse to say, we've got to have a really big government, you know, because there's some apocalyptic threat coming. It's called global warming, okay. Now, uh, I hope that Chris Minns can come to his senses. Okay, I know that they they just love throwing taxpayer money at the taxpayer money at the latest global warming scheme. There's one very good way to fix up the energy industry in this country, in this state, and that's just get the government the hell out of it. Okay, let nuclear power plants be, be built by the private sector. Let the coal industry flourish. Let the gas industry flourish. And yes, if the renewables are good in the free market, which I'm very sceptical of. But if they can compete in the free market, go for it. But just get the government out of it. 
So why are we throwing another billion dollars at this problem, okay? It's just money down a black hole. But you know, all that money, Fred, it always ends up in an individual's pocket, doesn't it? Someone. It, it, it does, filters yeah. down to, to, to people. Yeah, yeah. It all doesn't filter very far down, not to the people like you and I. <laughs> Um, the, uh, it, I'm getting the impression, John, that you think that the major parties have lost touch with ordinary people. Uh, is that true? And how do you revive grassroots interest in political parties these days? Look, you know, we've had so much prosperity, okay, for, for multiple generations in this country and, and other similar countries, okay. We've become so, 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 so rich, so prosperous, okay, that we've sort of uh, lost basic principles about what got us to this place in the first place, like living within your means as a government, you know, and now we're just going, all oh, this government debt, okay. So look, the, the minor party vote does keep growing. The major party vote does keep declining. I think that at some point there's going to be, there's going to be a total realignment on the right side of Australian politics. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like. I hope, Fred, it's because the Liberal Democrats become a party of government, okay. But the, there's other good little parties out there that we like. There are definitely elements in the Liberal Party and the National Party that we like. Okay? But they are a minority and they are a declining minority. Okay? There is, during the whole COVID thing, you know, I, was, I was active in the Liberal Party for 30 years. The reason why I quit was midway through 2021 when we had the second big lockdown. And I thought to myself, the most disappointing thing about this is I knew Gladys and Scott Morris would go along with garbage like that because okay, they didn't believe in anything. But I was thinking, where is the conservative faction in the party room jumping up and down about this? There was basically nobody... And the few that did speak out got, you know, you know, hit over the head. So we had George Christensen bravely spoke up. Craig Kelly bravely spoke up. Matt Canavan was pretty good. OK, he stayed within the tent, but, you know, he was pretty good. But mate, they made it a bit tough for him. Uh, Antic was terrific. OK, and Jared Rennick was terrific. Well, Jared Rennick's facing a very difficult pre-selection in a few months' time because he's so outspoken. Now, this is, this is the most disappointing thing. There basically is no conservative faction left in the federal parliamentary party room. I'm not seeing much in the state parliamentary party room. So these are the guys who are meant to be believing in small government and they sat back under two years of COVID nonsense and they, they didn't say anything. So I thought, look, we need a fresh start. The Liberal Democrats are the party I like. Oh, good. OK. I want to just return to one specific aspect of policy. Uh, which is pertinent to, to uh, at state level. One of the most dramatic changes in Australia over the past few decades is that our schools have been transformed into indoctrination centres for environmentalism and colonial self-loathing. If this indoctrination doesn't end soon, John, I think it doesn't matter what debates we have in Parliament because the next generation will be lost anyway. Will the Lib Dems, will the Lib Dems do anything to take the ideology out of education in New South Wales? The Liberal Democrats have got the most fantastic education policy and I really hope, once we've dealt with this COVID thing, I really hope to that to be one of the major things that we champion. No, we don't want to re-engineer the Department of Education and make it more conservative. We basically want to shut down the Department of Education. What we, what's happening in the United States right now is that there is this revolution happening. State governments are legislating in favour of a school voucher system. So at the beginning of every year, all the parents of school-aged children get a voucher from the government. And that voucher might be worth, say, $7,000. And, and the parents can then decide which school they want to send their children to. And in exchange, the parents give the school the $7,000 voucher. It basically makes all schools a private school. Now then the parents, who love their kids more than anybody, obviously, are going to decide what school is suitable for my little kid. 
Now maybe they want to go to a traditional big big school like like we have out there at the moment. But there'll be other other parents who say, look, I think my kid's got a really good knack for business or music or sport or the arts, okay? You can have religious-based schools, you can have home schools, you can have very small schools, very big schools, you can have micro schools. Now, if the parents don't like what the school's teaching them, the parents can go to another school. So it'll bring in that, the, the, the magic of the invisible free hand, of, of free enterprise, will come in here and re-engineer our education department. So we don't want to, this is the difference where the, the libertarians are from other right-wing parties. Other right-wing parties want to say, oh, look, you know, we want to get into power so we can do right-wing things, okay? And left-wing parties say, oh, we want to get into power so we can do left-wing things. No, no, the Liberal Democrats just want to make the whole government a lot, lot smaller so less damage can be done. And step number one is a voucher system for the education. Brilliant idea. I look forward to you proposing that in Parliament soon. John Ruddick, thanks so much for your time. Good on you, friend. Thanks for the time, mate. That's the new Liberal Democrat, New South Wales MP, John Ruddick. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at, at Fred Paul, that's F-R-E-D-P-A-W-L-E, or follow ADH on at ADHTVAUS. And you can catch all the latest from ADH's rapidly expanding lineup, including Damien Curry, Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, and of course, the great Alan Jones by going to adh.tv or downloading our app, or find us wherever you get your podcasts. ADH is the new home for common sense commentary, and there is no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again tomorrow at 7 p.m. Good night.